Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. How should Christians relate to authority in a post-Christian world? God gives us four key principles in the book of 1 Peter. Let's listen now. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we know your word is true. Your word is our guide in faith and life. And so we pray, God, today you would speak to us through your word and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, today as we continue our study of 1 Peter, we're asking the question, how do disciples of Jesus relate to and respond to authority in the post-Christian world? How do disciples respond to authority in the post-Christian world? Since King and Emperor Charlemagne, Christians have pretty much held the crown in our hands in Western society. As king of the Franks, Charlemagne extended his rule over Western Europe all the way to the borders of the Byzantine Empire in the 8th century. He reunited Europe after a dark ages that had started at the fall of the Western Roman Empire, and there was a flourishing of culture and learning and education. Charlemagne was dedicated to the concept that the state and the church could be united in a powerful institution. And so Charlemagne spread Christianity forcefully beyond the borders of his empire and within the borders of his empire. He stepped in to help and to protect the church. In the year 800 on Christmas Day, Charlemagne was in Rome praying at the tomb of St. Peter. He was kneeling and praying, and when he went to rise up, the Pope came and placed a crown on Charlemagne's head and declared him emperor of the Romans, emperor of a new holy Roman empire. And from that point forward in the West, Christians have figuratively held the crown, the rule in our hands. Well, in a post-Christian world, Christians don't hold the crown any longer. Instead, governments in the West tend to be dominated by other philosophies like secularism or humanism. And consequently, governments frequently are not pushing Christianity on the subjects of nations in the West. In fact, at times, as we look at governments, We can see that governments push beliefs and behaviors that are contrary to Christianity on citizens in Western nations. And not only that, as we look across the West, we can find that there are governments that actually push back against Christian belief and practice. And so the truth of the matter is Christians do not hold the crown any longer in the West. And if Christians don't hold the crown, the question becomes... How do we respond? How do we respond to government authorities when we don't hold the crown? Do we respond the way Key West did in the 1980s when they didn't like what the government was doing? 
In the 1980s, the U.S. Border Patrol and Customs set up a checkpoint at the place where the Keys meet the mainland in Florida. The Keys are off the southwest point of Florida, and U.S. Customs officials set up a border crossing, a checkpoint. They were looking for illegal drugs and for illegal immigrants, but setting up that checkpoint created a traffic jam, sometimes 17 miles long, coming off the Keys. Well, the residents of the Keys were furious. They protested, they sued, and nothing changed. And then they came to a conclusion. Well, if the government has set up a border crossing, we must be a foreign nation. So they declared themselves independent of the United States. They, they founded what is called the Conk Republic. They made their own flag, their own navy, their own air force, and they declared themselves independent. Now, that was 40 years ago, and now the Conk Republic is really more of a way to entertain tourists than it is a political reality. But it raises a question. When we don't like what it is the government is doing, how do we respond? Now, of course, we don't set up our own independent republic, but the book of First Peter asks the question, how do disciples of Jesus respond to a government that is not Christian or even hostile to Christianity? That's the question that Peter is addressing in First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25 that we're studying this week, and we will come away from that study with four things that Peter says about how we respond to authorities in a post Christian world. And so we begin with our first principle, and we're actually going to get it, not from verse 13, but from verse 12. And we're going to see that Peter is saying to us that we give critics no reason to criticize. Now, he makes this argument in verse 12. I understand that I read that to you last week. I'm going to read it to you again. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Peter writes, "'Keep your conduct among the Gentiles,' that is, the nations, "'honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, "'they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation.'" Now, in some ways, verse 12 is really a thesis statement for the things that Peter is about to write to us. Don't give the critics a reason to criticize. Now, you see, the ancient Roman society was organized a bit differently than our society is. It was built on the family. But the Roman family was not the same as the modern American nuclear family. The Roman family was headed by one called the pater familias, that is, the male head of the household. And the family included, of course, the nuclear family. But in addition, the Roman family included the extended family. And beyond that, it included any slaves that worked in the household. And beyond that, anyone who basically had an obligation to this family. And the pater familias's job was to maintain order in the family to make sure that the family stayed aligned toward building the common good of Roman society. And anything that interrupted the Roman family was viewed as interrupting Roman society. And anything, particularly a religion, that disrupted the Roman family would be looked on very negatively by Roman society. And Roman society had plenty of reasons to criticize Christianity 
You see, when Christianity began to spread, Christianity was teaching the notion that, that everyone is a human being created by God in God's image. Slaves could become Christians. Wives and children could become Christians without the permission of the pater familias. And because anyone could become a Christian, there was an unusual kind of freedom to these people who were professing to be disciples of Jesus Christ. They called themselves brothers and sisters to one another. Beyond that, when you became a follower of Jesus Christ, you could no longer worship the gods that had been worshipped by the balance of society. And Christians kept proclaiming that Jesus is Lord when everyone in Roman society professed that Caesar is Lord. And so as Christianity spread, Romans were talking, and they did not like what they saw in Christianity. And so Peter is writing to Christians living in this atmosphere, and he's telling them, give the critics no reason to criticize. Peter's acknowledging that criticism was rising against Christianity, and he was saying to his readers, live good, moral lives and avoid doing anything wrong. Beyond that, he's saying, when it's possible, find common ground. He said the Romans believe in strong families. We believe in strong, godly families. Let them see. Let them see in you something noble. But you see, Peter's not just writing to the first century. Peter is writing to us as well. And as we live in a post-Christian society, a post-Christian culture, Peter is tacitly telling us too, don't give the critics any reason to criticize. Peter tells us in verse 12, there are going to be critics, and they are going to find some reasons to criticize, but don't give them any additional reasons to criticize. Now, Peter is telling us some things very practically about how to live to avoid criticism, and we're going to get into those over the next couple of weeks. But he starts, his basic premise is, when you live in a society that is not Christian, do good, avoid doing evil, be upstanding members of society and contribute to the common good. Don't give the critics any reason to criticize. Now, as we continue and we pick up with verse 13, we're going to find Peter telling us as well that we submit to the government. He talks about the government in verses 13 through 17 where we read, "'Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good.'" For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, you're going to want to have your Bibles out today because I want to show you where he is making the argument that he's making. Because Peter is telling us that God has given us the government. It's been established by God. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, he's saying, for the Lord's sake, be subject to the human institutions. God has a role for the government to play. In verse 15, as he's speaking about submitting to the government, he says that it's part of the will of God for us. 
And then if you look down at verse 17, you're going to find him linking, fearing God and honoring the emperor. They're right side by side. Now, throughout the New Testament, there are passages that tell us that God has given a role to the government. And so what I want you to do, if you don't know, go to the manuscript that's published of this sermon, and there are references in there that will show you other passages throughout the Bible where God is the one who gives us the government. And when God gives us the government, he gives us the government for a purpose. Look back in verse 14, and you'll see the purpose for which God has given us governors. He says that they are sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, this is a theme that that Peter is just beginning here. It's developed elsewhere in the New Testament in more detail. In fact, Paul writes extensively. In Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so we find that government has a role to play. It's given by God, and it has a role to play. The interesting thing that Peter does not argue is that the role that government plays is contingent upon whether government is right or wrong. Peter tells us that government exists at every level. He he talks about the emperor, the highest international level of authority. He talks about the governors, the lowest uh, local level of authority in some ways in his day. He says they're all given by God. And it's interesting that when he speaks about the emperor and the governor, he's talking about the Roman emperor. And the governors the Roman emperor appointed to impose the emperor's will on the people. Now, as he writes about the Roman emperors in his day, in all likelihood, he's referring to the Roman emperor Nero. Nero started out his reign pretty well, seeming to govern in a magnanimous way. Of course, he came to power because his mother murdered his stepfather. But Nero, however went downhill quickly. Nero was paranoid, and he murdered many people around him in his paranoia. And Nero craved being in the spotlight. He did many things to grab the attention and everything for himself, and he wiped away anybody who stood in his way. Eventually, Nero became responsible for a persecution of Christians. He executed Christians in some gruesome and horrific kinds of ways. In all likelihood, Nero was the emperor who was in power when Paul and Peter, who wrote this letter, were martyred for their faith. Now, things had not gone that badly yet. Persecution hadn't gone that far yet, but Nero's rule was headed downhill quickly when Peter wrote. And yet Peter said, honor him. 
him, his guys, honor him, honor them, respect them. The emperor who would eventually kill him. They weren't right. They were wrong. It's not the rightness of the government that leads Peter to say, respect, honor, be subject to the government in authority. Now, Peter does not in 1 Peter chapter 2 address the question of whether and when we resist an unjust government. That topic is addressed elsewhere in the Bible, and that is due its entire own treatment bias and its own consideration bias. Peter's not writing for that reason. He is writing this book to a group of Christians who are struggling with the beginnings of persecution in their region, and he is telling them how to navigate a non-Christian world. That's what Peter is doing. And so we don't have the answer to the question of whether, when, and how we resist an unjust government. But we do have some principles coming out of what Peter wrote to us. And there's one that I want to address in particular. It's an outgrowth of the idea that we respect and we honor the government and government officials. And for this, I simply want to say, everyone dig in and pay attention. I'm about to say something that's going to be hard. And then when I'm done, you're going to say, what did he just say? Just clue in quickly up front. And if you miss what I say, go check the manuscript later because it's written there too. This is important. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, is forbidding us as Christians from dishonoring, maligning, and speaking negatively about the government and about government officials. Please hear me clearly on that. You see, rhetoric in our country, I don't know if you've noticed it, <laughs> but it's gotten a little heated. It's happened before in our history, and it's happened now. The political rhetoric in our country is a little hot. Back when Donald Trump was president of the United States, there were a bunch of people who vilified him in their rhetoric, in media, online. And now that Joe Biden is president of the United States, there's a whole nother group of people angrily vilifying him in the media and online. And this behavior is forbidden to us as Christians. Understand this. It's imperative that we express ourselves politically. It's imperative that you get involved in the political process in this country. But it is imperative as well that when we do and as we do, we speak respectfully and with honor of the officials who are in charge of us. And Peter tells us in part why. Why? Because when we malign public officials, we look bad in front of the pagans. We give the critics a reason to criticize us. They see us maligning, and they say, look at what Christians are doing. But worse than that, go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says, so you, because of everything that Jesus has done in you, put away, look at what he says, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And when we malign those in public office, when we malign the government, we're doing just that. 
We are showing malice and envy and slander and deceit and hypocrisy. And that's all the stuff that we are supposed to be putting off. And so Peter is telling us, speak respectfully of the officials in charge of you. And so what's the principle? The principle is that we respect and honor the government. But Peter has more to say. Peter goes on to tell us that we are to endure suffering. Now he speaks in verses 18 through 20 to servants, to household servants or to slaves. In verses 18 through 20, he writes, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, the institution of slavery in the Roman Empire was totally and completely dehumanizing. The Romans had a slave-based economy. In the first century, roughly 12 million people were enslaved in the Roman Empire at any given time. That's 16 to 20% of the Roman population. Now, a lot has been written in modern studies about how comparatively humane Roman slavery was as an institution. It beat execution, they said, which was the alternative. Slaves were sometimes educated, and sometimes slaves served in positions of influence, and there's even evidence that people in the first century chose slavery in order to advance themselves in society. And so the argument is made, look at how humanizing Roman slavery was. It was not. Slavery is dehumanizing, because slavery denied that a human being was a human being. You see, in Roman law, a slave was a tool, a possession, a thing that was owned. And that slave could be treated any way that a Roman master wanted to treat that slave. Any work that could be demanded of them, they had to do. They were frequently sexually abused and exploited. There were whole manuals written for the heads of families to remind them that they must periodically punish their slaves just to keep slave uprisings from happening. And in Roman law, it was permissible to punish your slave in any way you chose for any reason, right up to and including summary execution because you were in a bad mood. Slavery is dehumanizing. Peter writes to slaves, to servants, and makes clear that they are human beings. Look at verse 18. It begins, servants. Now, that's a household slave. He could have just as easily begun slaves. What I want you to understand is no one in the first century wrote to slaves. There were plenty of, of materials written about slavery for the pater familias to help them know how to manage their household, but no one wrote to slaves. And here is Peter writing to slaves. He's addressing them personally. Why does he address them personally? Because slaves had become Christians. 
They'd become disciples of Jesus. They were his brothers and sisters in Christ. He's writing to them because they belong to him. They're part of the church together. He sees them. They're his brothers and sisters. They're real, live human beings. But he goes further. He acknowledges in these verses that a slave can and has been treated unjustly. Look at that. Servants, be subject to your masters, verse 18. Not only to the good and gentle, but to the unjust. And he talks about what it's like to suffer unjust punishment. Peter says slavery is unjust, and it can be unjust, and masters can be unjust. Nobody in the first century thought anything a master did was unjust. How can you treat a hammer unjustly? And all slaves were, to anyone else in the first century, was a hammer, a tool to accomplish a purpose. And Peter is saying, I see you. You're human. You're my brother and sister in Christ, and what's happening to you is unjust. And some of you may say, I'm not sure I see all that here. Well, the Romans did. The Romans understood what Peter and Christians like him were saying. They understood that Peter and Christians like him were making human beings out of slaves and were calling their treatment unjust and that it could undermine everything, which is part of the reason why the Romans were so afraid of Christians, because Christianity has a way of upending socially unjust practices like slavery, and it did, and the Romans were right. But you see, Peter's not just writing to slaves here as if they're different from everyone else. Peter is saying something far more shocking here, and that is he is saying that suffering, particularly unjust suffering, can be a gift, a grace, a benevolence, a benefaction given by a deity to a people, a grace gift. Now, he's not saying that the suffering of of being sick or getting older is is a gift. He's not saying that, that the suffering that we undergo because we're sinful or foolish or disobedient is a gift, but he's saying that when unjust suffering comes our way, it can be a gift from God. And he's saying that this gift from God is something that we all, as disciples of Jesus, should be expecting to be a part of our lives. He's talking to all of us when he talks to slaves, because Peter recognizes that fundamentally we are slaves of God. We are wholly owned by God. Look back in verse 16. In verse 16, he says that we are living as servants of God. The word is doulos. Doulos is normally translated slave. We are slaves and servants of God. Peter is addressing us all, and he's saying to us all, expect that suffering unjustly at times is going to be a part of your life, of my life, of our lives together. And he's saying, when you suffer unjustly, do not return evil for evil. Don't turn around and and cause retribution to the one causing you to suffer. He says, instead, focus your mind on God as you suffer unjustly. And when you do, grace can happen. Glory can happen. The kingdom of God can be built. God can be giving gifts to us. He's telling us that we are going to endure unjust suffering. 
I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like suffering. I particularly don't like suffering unjustly at the hands of someone else. I don't want to tell you this today. I don't want to. <laughs> I will be blunt. When I suffer unjustly at someone else's hands, I kind of enjoy whining about it. And when I suffer unjustly at someone else's hands, what comes out from me naturally is everything back from chapter 2, verse 1. It's malice. It's, it, it's deceit. It's the bending of truth. It's slander. When somebody causes me to suffer unjustly, that human nature, that kingdoms of this world nature that I was born into comes right out of me. I don't have to work to make it happen. And Peter says, no, as you put that away, as you put that away, when you suffer unjustly at the hands of another, keep your mind focused on God and what he's doing. Keep your mouth closed. And when you do, glory may be had. Grace may be poured out. Gifts are going to be given to you by God. And this is a difficult teaching. It's a deep topic. We're learning today that as disciples of Jesus Christ, life is not always going to be easy. And we're confronting the fact that in a post-Christian world, there may be times where we suffer unjustly. Peter tells us to expect it, to endure it, and as we do so, to see the nature of Jesus Christ being shaped in us. And that's what we want. We want to be like Jesus. That is his final command to us. We follow Jesus' example. We follow Jesus' example. And he talks about Jesus' example in verses 21 through 25, where he writes, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, some of you are saying, I'm not sure you were right about that whole thing about suffering. But look at what he says in verse 21, if you were unclear. He says, for to this, to what? To what I just talked about in verses 20 through uh, 18 through 20, to enduring suffering unjustly. For to this you 
And the pronoun that he uses there is a second person plural, you all, for too enduring unjust suffering at the hands of others, you all have been called. And then why? The question becomes why? Why would you call us to that? And he says, because of Christ Jesus, because he did that. And, and when he did that and suffered unjustly for you, he set an example for you to follow. And then he goes on to talk about what that example is. Look at verses 22 and following. This is the example of Jesus. He committed no sin. He lived a perfect and sinless life, that is. Nor was deceit found in his mouth, and neither was malice or envy or slander or hypocrisy or any of those other things from the kingdoms of this world mindset from chapter 2, verse 1. None of that was found in him when he was reviled. Jesus was reviled when he was arrested in the garden by the, by the temple guards. He was reviled when he was on trial before the Jewish religious authorities. He was reviled by the Roman authorities. He was reviled by the guards who beat him. He was reviled by the crowds as he carried his cross. He was reviled by the people who gathered at the foot of his cross to taunt him. He was reviled when he was criticized and humiliated by the criminals being executed along with him. He was reviled, but he never turned that reviling back around on another. Instead, it says, he himself, verse 24, bore our sins. He took our sins. Jesus died on the cross, not for his sins, but for our sins. That's unjust. He took my sin. That's not just. He didn't do that. He took my sin on him. And when he bore our sins on the cross, he did so that God might pour out something new and glorious, grace for us. And he was sacrificed. By his wounds we have been healed. He was, he was sacrificed like a lamb, like a sheep, being offered to God in place of our sins. He was the one setting the example for us. Now, as Peter writes to us here in these verses, he's, he's, he's pointing out to us that Jesus is the suffering servant. The suffering servant is predicted to come. God would send a savior, a deliverer, a suffering savior deliverer. And, and, and it's told in Isaiah 53. And in the song, the psalm of the suffering servant written by Isaiah the prophet, we read and we hear who it is who would come so we would recognize him. And Peter says, we've seen the suffering servant. He has come. He is Jesus. And Peter takes phrases from throughout Isaiah 53 and sprinkles them here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. And I want you to hear, I'm going to give you just a, a bit of the suffering servant psalm from Isaiah chapter 53. And I want you to hear phrases that Peter picked up. I'm not going to point them out one at a time. I just want you to absorb it. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 5. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Peter saw that Jesus is the suffering servant and pointed it out in one way after another. This is Jesus. Just as Isaiah prophesied, this suffering servant died in our place. He experienced unjust suffering at the hands of those who had no right to give it to him. And yet because he did, grace is poured out on us. Jesus is the suffering servant. And Peter is saying that we, as disciples of Jesus, are to follow his example. Peter's saying, look at Jesus. Look at who he is. That's him. He's the Messiah, the suffering servant. Look at what he did. Get that. Follow that. Do that. Ask the Holy Spirit to shape that inside of you. Be like Jesus in that way. And that solves for us the question of how we relate and respond to authorities in the post-Christian world. Peter's clear. There are going to be times when we find ourselves living under unjust governments. There are going to be times where we find ourselves suffering at the hands of unjust people. When that happens, we have the opportunity to begin to understand what our brothers and sisters living in the non-Christian and pre-Christian world have been enduring for centuries. But the question becomes, how will we respond? How will we respond to an unjust government? How will we respond to unjust people? Peter tells us how. We give our critics no reason to criticize. We respect and submit to the government. We endure suffering and we follow Jesus' example. That's how we navigate the post-Christian world. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. 
From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.